Matthew chapter 28. We are in the very last part of the book of Matthew. We have been in the book of Matthew for two years, and we're finishing up next week. Next week will be the last sermon in the book of Matthew. After the book of Matthew, we will roll right into the book of Acts, which is a continuation of the story. So that's going to be a wonderful time. Uh, We are talking about the Great Commission this morning, that famous text. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you're familiar with it, I'm sure. We'll do a two-part series on it. So if you don't hear something you like this week, just wait till next week, I guess I should say. But (laughs) uh, I am calling this sermon The Great Suggestion. Dramatic pause. (laughs) Because it seems as though many of us as Christians have taken it as a suggestion from Jesus rather than a commissioning from Jesus. We think Jesus said something like, listen, now that I've died on the cross for you and forgiven you of all your sins and risen in glory and my spirit lives in you and my kingdom is invading earth, if you're not busy, if you don't mind, once in a while, I would just suggest gently that you might engage in the work of making disciples maybe sometime. It's not what he said. (laughs) He commanded us as his followers, to be engaged in the work of making disciples. So I'm making fun of us by saying it's a great suggestion. It is not. It's a great commission, and we'll read it right now. We are looking at just verses 18 through 20 of Matthew 28. I'm reading and preaching from the NIV. It says in Matthew 28, 18, Then Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. God's holy word, let's pray. Lord, we ask that this morning you would give us understanding of your word that you would give us unction to obey your word, that you would make clear um, the motive you've given us as to why we ought to be engaged in your mission of making disciples. We ask as reality that you would save us from selfish salvation, that we wouldn't be stopgaps, but the gospel would go through us and out beyond us as we obey you in the Great Commission. We ask that this text would be to us this morning in context, good news, that we'd be thrilled with the gospel that's brought to us and we'd be thrilled with taking the gospel to others and we would discover the joy in living life in your mission rather than merely for ourselves. Lord, I, I humble myself before the church and before you and I ask that you would please help me to teach and preach in a way that is authentic and true and brings glory to you. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> We are in the holiday season, you know, Christmas and Thanksgiving, all that. So at my home, we've been entertaining a little bit, like I'm sure many of you have, having people over for dinner, so on and so forth. We love to do that. And we're probably much like you in the sense that whenever someone is coming over for dinner, we do last minute cleaning. You know what I mean? Like live like pigs all week long and then someone's coming over. Hurry up. We got to clean up. You just stuff it in the drawer, hide it, put it under the couch, wipe that down. And so we had a bunch of people coming over for Thanksgiving and, uh, Kate and I got to cleaning real quick, you know what I mean? Like, we got to clean this joint up. And my daughter, Fifi, who is three years old, she's just at the age now where she, like, gets cleaning. Thank you, Jesus. And so she's trying, this Thanksgiving, as we were getting ready for people to come over, she tried to help us clean. 
She's only three, you know what I mean? So like limited skill set and limited understanding of what clean actually is. But her favorite cleaning implement is the sponge. She used to like the broom, but she was making a mess of our walls, whacking the walls. So we took the broom from her. She has discovered the sponge, minimal damage. I said, sponge away, sweetheart. And so she's helping us clean with the sponge, which she doesn't really know what she's doing. She's three. So she can't even reach the areas that really need to be cleaned with the sponge. Whatever's eye level, she's like whacking walls. And she goes outside. She's wiping dirty outside places with the sponge, bringing it back in, trying to sponge the white carpet. Like she's just making a mess, wiping the sponge around. It was not helpful. (laughs) But it was really joyful. It was a really wonderful experience for me as a father of this three-year-old little girl whom I love to have her pick up a sponge and join me in my work of cleaning up. It was wonderful. I wouldn't have changed it. You know, if she wasn't helping me, the place probably would have gotten cleaner quicker. I probably could have done a better job without her. I probably could have gotten further in the work. I actually had to clean up what she cleaned up. But as a father who loves her, Kate, her mother, like it was a joy and a delight to have her engaged in it with us. And so is the father's love and heart toward you. You know, one of our foundational understandings of God is that God does not need period. God does not need anything. God is all sufficient, the scriptures teach us. So God does not need you. God does not need me. And he certainly doesn't need us to do his work. God could probably clean up this world better without us. He probably spends a lot of time cleaning up the messes that we make, trying to clean things up. But because he loves us, because he's thrilled with us, because we are his beloved sons and daughters. It is the delight of the Father. It is the joy of Christ to include us in his work of making disciples of all the nations. So I want to take a little pressure off and just tell you that God doesn't need you. But I want to bring a little clarity and tell you that God loves you. Therefore, God wants you to be engaged in the passion of his heart, making disciples of all the nations. Because of love, he has called us into it. And he does it in the text in this really profound way. Like, remember the context. Jesus went to the cross. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was crucified. He he, he bled there. He died. He was buried in the grave. He rose again in victory. Death could not hold him down. He's resurrected in glory. And in that glory, he says at the beginning of our text, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus says that in his resurrected glory, I have all the authority in the universe. That word authority, exousia in Greek, means the combination of right and might. Jesus says, I have all the right in heaven and on earth. I've got all the might, like I'm the man. I'm in resurrected glory. I've got authority. I'm exalted. And then he says, in light of that, I want you to go and make disciples. In other words, what is this thing that Jesus does with his ultimate authority immediately after the resurrection is he seeks to draw us into his continued work of making disciples of all the nations. He says, I have all the authority. In other words, I could do it without you. But because of his great love for us again, he pulls us into it and includes us here in his work. So what exactly is he asking us to do? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. 
So making disciples is the thrust of the whole package. What Jesus is inviting us to do as his followers is to make disciples. And the way that we do that is by going, baptizing, and teaching. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded to you. So the goal is to make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching. Now, if we're going to make disciples, it would be important for us to understand what a disciple is. We often call ourselves as Christians disciples of Christ, and so we ought to be. But what exactly is a disciple? What's the goal here? Well, in its basic uh, meaning, disciple means a learner. I want you to notice, though, that it's in the present tense. A disciple of Jesus Christ is not someone who has learned. A disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who is learning. So if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are in the process of learning. Learning what? Specifically, to progressively bring more and more of your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. A disciple is someone who is in the process of learning to progressively bring his or her life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple does. They're a follower of Jesus. So, A disciple is in the process of learning to bring their life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we are called to engage in the work of helping others around the world to do that. And Jesus said that the mission knows no end to its scope. He said they're all nations. And that's material for next week's sermon. We'll talk about all nations. We'll talk about what go means, what go means for us right here, right now in our context, what go means for people going to other parts of the world. But, but, but the salient point there is this call to make disciples, this call for people to be invited into the gospel and knows no end. There is no uh, finish to the scope. Nobody is beyond the love of God or the reach of Christ. Christ to save. Okay, we'll talk more about all nations and going next week. And then he says, what I want you to do in the making of disciples is I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, why is baptism so important here? Every word is really important. This is like the last thing Jesus says in the book of Matthew, right? It's been 28 long chapters. This is the last thing he says. It's like a big deal. So why is baptizing such a big deal here? We'll return to our definition of a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who is progressively learning to bring his or her life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Baptism is meant to be that initial act of obedience and that primary declaration of allegiance to Jesus. So baptism is the first way in which we who put our faith in Jesus Christ and become Christians are meant to obey Jesus and to profess our allegiance to Jesus. And baptism reveals something and baptism reclassifies someone. It reveals outwardly in this picture, this this parable, this living metaphor, it reveals what God has done inwardly for us by grace that we through faith in Christ have died with Christ. The old life is in the past and we have new life in him. And just as he was risen from the dead, we come out of the water symbolizing that resurrection to new life and God's spirit lives in us and we have new life. So it is meant to reveal that fact to the world that look, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm a new creation in him. And it reclassifies us 
right? Previously, we were in the domain of darkness, the book of Colossians says. We have been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. When Jesus has baptized them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, in the name means this is not some routine thing that Christian ministers say. It means this is really important. You are being brought into and under the authority and the life and the character and the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost God himself. To be baptized is to be trinitized, to reclassified from rebel in the domain of darkness to someone under the authority of the holiness of God within his kingdom through Christ. So disciples of Jesus, followers, are to be baptized and to obey Christ in that way. And then he says that we are to be teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded us. And it's important when we think about our uh, call to teach the world about Jesus, that the teaching is not merely meant to be informational. The teaching is meant to be transformational, if that's a word, right? We, we are teaching the truth of Jesus Christ for the transformation of lives. Now, the truth in itself is alive and active, the very word of God. It has an effect. It does change things. But you know what really changes things? When we obey it. That's why Jesus says, teach them to obey. And we and the world experiences maximal transformation when we obey the truth about Jesus and everything that Jesus has taught us. He says, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore unto all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, to live under the authority of the Trinity. So with that brief explanation, and we'll get more of that next week, I think at this point, it makes sense for every Christian here to ask his or herself two questions. Number one, am I really a disciple? Number two, am I making disciples? Right, with what Jesus just said, with all of his claimed authority and all of his resurrected glory, we've got to ask ourselves, am I a disciple and am I making disciples? Now, the first question might require a little bit of like deep, honest introspection. Alarmingly, disturbingly, Jesus said that there will be those who were Christians by name only. And in the end, at the judgment, they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do thus and so in your name? And they'll say, get away from me. I didn't even know you. They will not have had a true conversion experience. They will have taken on some of the trappings of Christianity. They might have showed up at church. They might have done a couple, few Christianish things and learned a few facts about theology in the Bible, but there wasn't a real transformation through the repentance of sins and putting faith in Jesus Christ. And Scripture warns about that enough that when we have this definition of a disciple in the sermon today, we need to ask ourselves, am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're like, no, dude, I'm not a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm not a Christian. I just showed up here. Somebody brought me. This is kind of gnarly. I would say to you, God loves you. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus and be forgiven and become a disciple. And then if you are a disciple, I'll excuse the people who just got saved in this moment, but for those of us that have been disciples for any length of time, we have to then ask ourselves questions because this is not a suggestion from Jesus. This is a command from Jesus. We have to ask ourselves the question, am I making disciples? Now, the first one is a little bit like internal, ethereal, like this heart level stuff. Um, But the second one is empirical. 
In other words, you, you should be able to write out on a piece of paper the ways that you as a Christian are obeying the Great Commission, the ways in which you are engaged in making disciples. Because again, it wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. Jesus gave us a Great Commission. Any job that you've ever had in your life had some deliverables attached to it. In other words, there was a job description, there were expectations, and you were supposed to deliver on those things, whether it was a good that you were creating or a service that you were providing. Every job that you've ever had had deliverables attached to it. This is your job description. This is what is expected. Deliver on that, right? Well, there are some deliverables within Christianity and within Christian discipleship. We are to be making disciples, And in the same way that you have to show up to your job and be intentional, there's some intentionality required here. Listen, you wouldn't show up at your job, let's say you work at Costco, and you show up there, and you're just like hanging out, and you're just like chilling, and your boss comes by, and your boss is like, what are you doing, dude? You're like, I'm just hanging out, man. I'm just being me. I work at Costco, you know, just being me, just do what I do, see what happens. Maybe some work will happen. Your boss will be like, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And yet many of us in our Christianity, that's the attitude that we have. I'm just being me. I'm just hanging out. Maybe some discipleship will happen. I don't know. If it doesn't work at Costco, it don't work in the kingdom. So this is like heavy-handed, make us all feel guilty, mean preacher moment. You're going to write down in a list the ways that you are intentionally engaged in the process of making disciples what would that list look like? What's on that list? I think we probably have to confess, many of us, that that list would be rather scant and vague. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm preaching to another congregation. It's not you guys, but hear this for some other church. You guys are awesome. No, listen. I think that we all realize if we were to take this command from Jesus seriously, that we perhaps have not given careful enough attention to what Jesus has asked us to do to be engaged in the work of making disciples of all the nations. And you know, like Jesus said it, it's in the Bible, it's, it's the end of the book of Matthew, so we're going to take it seriously. And if our lists are scant, if we're not that involved, if there's not much to show for what Jesus has called us to, then we have to address why. And perhaps the problem is one of motivation. There are three basic ways that we might be motivated to do what Jesus is asking us to do here, to make disciples. The first way might be a sense of duty. How many of you are like sense of duty people? If someone says do it, you do it. Wow, almost no one, Melissa. Okay, a couple of you. (laughs) Allie, really? Skiba, you are? Awesome. I got some stuff to tell you to do. Uh, So you're a sense of duty person. Many of us, like, you know, like I kind of said, Jesus said, do it, so we're going to do it. I'm going to obey this out of a sense of duty. I'm just going to, like, get it done because Jesus said I should do it. But here's what we realize very quickly when that's our motivation. Tell me if this rings true to you. We realize very quickly from experience and from Scripture and the gospel tells us we're not that good at duty. We're just not that good at duty. The whole Old Testament story is about how God's people sucked at duty. He gave them the commandments. He gave them the law. He gave them 613. At the end of it, he says, you guys are horrible at this. I'm going to have to send my son. The scriptures teach us 
The gospel instructs us and experience tells us that we in general are not that good at duty, at faithfulness when it comes to obeying the things that God said. And it's not just us, it's been all of humanity, right? When God created everything, he placed Adam and Eve, a literal Adam and a literal Eve, in a garden. And they were meant to be co-regents with him. He said, look, I'm going to ask you to subdue the earth. I put all these things under your dominion. Go ahead and name the animals. Be faithful, fruitful, multiply. We are meant to be co-regents with God and represent God's life on earth. And no sooner had God said it than Adam and Eve failed at it. One thing God is saying, one thing. And there was one tree. God said, you can eat from all these other trees, but this one tree, don't eat from it. Oh, that's probably the one that we want then. Isn't that what we're like? And Satan comes along like, yeah, that's the one you want. The one you can't have, that's the one you want. Forbidden fruit tastes the sweetest. And so we eat the fruit, we rebel against God. We blow it in our co-regency call with God. Jesus comes as the new Adam, the better and true king who brings the reign in the kingdom of God. And God says then after the garden, well, gee whiz, Adam and Eve blew it. Humanity's jacked up. Now I'm going to establish a people for myself through Abraham. I'm going to call them Israel. They're going to be a vehicle by which I reveal my character, my quality, my purposes in the world. Israel will be a light unto the nations. Israel will be a witness for the whole world. And again, the story of the Old Testament is the way that Israel repeatedly failed to do that so that when we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus comes as the faithful and true witness, the true light of the world. And the story of failure on, the half of, on behalf of humanity, Adam and Eve and Israel, is also the story of our failure. That's why Christ died for us. That's why God doesn't say, okay, Let me do this. Let me take a look at all the good stuff you've done. And we're going to say, yeah, that's awesome. That's good enough. And you're in. God looks at all the stuff we've done and said, even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Jesus lived the perfect life on your behalf, died death so that you wouldn't have to to pay the price for your sins and rose from the dead to give you new life because you failed. So the whole point of the gospel is we failed, but we have forgiveness through God and Jesus Christ. So if our motivation to obey the Great Commission is merely out of this like duty-sensed obligation, well, we're sure to fail. Does that make sense? You guys following me? Just humor me at this point because I'm sweating. Just humor me. Okay. So that's not enough. The second way that we may be motivated is for a genuine love for the lost. Whether it's the lost around us, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, at our beaches, in our workplace, in our schools, a compassion for the plight of humanity, a compassion for people apart from Jesus, a true love for the lost. And this is certainly awesome, and we ought to have that. But I would suggest to you that if that's your motivation, you need a deeper impetus for mission. That won't get you far enough. Only the love of God is never-ending, unconditional, and saves. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. Not so you so love the world, God gave his son. Right? His love is ultimate. So if our motivation for his work is our love, it's not enough. Our love isn't enough. Think about the way that you love people. Think about how much you care about the plight of humanity. It's not enough to fulfill the Great Commission. It's not impetus enough. We need a deeper impetus. So I would suggest to us that the reason that we ought to obey this call and the reason that we actually can 
is because he loves me. Because Jesus loves me is the reason that this thing has any wind to its back, that this thing has any possibility. Why I would ever ultimately do it? I know my sense of duty is going to fail me. I know I don't love people enough to ultimately sacrifice and fulfill this call. The only reason I could do it is because God loves me so much. It's a right response to the love of God. And if that's true, then we need to recast it. Because I did say it was a commandment and commission is kind of a dark, hard-edged word. But we're commissioned here because of love. We're commanded because of love in a couple different ways. One, because of the inclusive, choked on that word, inclusivity of the love of God. The inclusivity of the love of God. I want you to notice that this whole thing is framed in withness. Right, the gospel of Matthew started by telling us all the ways that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and the promises of God. It's Christmas time, so let's think about one. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall be with a child, and she shall give birth to a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the whole promise of Jesus coming is that he would be God with us. God's ancient desire of withness, being with his people whom he loves, is being fulfilled in Jesus. So much so that when John wrote his gospel, he said in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that when Jesus calls his disciples in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 3, it says Jesus called those who he himself wanted that they might be with him. This whole thing is about withness with God. Jesus didn't save you to hold himself aloof from you. Jesus didn't save you to just have you do this little shiny Christian thing. He saved you for intimacy with the Trinity. So that the last thing that Jesus says about making disciples is, we read it in verse 20, and lo, I am with you always, even to the very end. So this whole thing is about withness. Why am I excited that Fifi helps Kate and I clean the house? It's not because we need her to, right? It's not because we're taskmaster. I can't say words. It's not because of that. It's because we love her. It's inclusivity. It's bringing her near to our work. God is bringing us into his work, his passion. All mission is God's mission. It's not that the church has a mission, it's that Christ has a mission and the church is invited to be a part of it. And we are invited to be a part of the mission of God because he loves us. So what we see throughout Bible, throughout the Bible and throughout history is that God chooses to work through his people rather than independent of his people. This is a love thing. And what I want to suggest to you is that there is a profound experience of the witness of Jesus Christ in engaging in the mission of Jesus Christ. Because that's what Jesus is doing, right? Like I say to my son all the time, my son likes to sleep late. He's a teenager, so you know, 
how teenagers are. He likes to sleep very late. I like to get up early, and I love to go surfing in the morning. So I'm always shaking and waking him up, being like, dude, let's go surf together. Let's go surf together. He's still sleeping, so I go surfing anyway. And later on, he's like, Dad, why didn't you go surfing with me? Why didn't we go surfing together? Because you're there, and I'm here, dude. Like, you're there sleeping, and I'm going surfing over here. Like, I'm up in action doing it. And for so many Christians, we're over here sleeping, and Jesus is busy in his mission of saving people, and we just miss something in that. You see what I'm saying? Just humor me, lest I sweat anymore, okay? There is this experience of withness that is meant in the Great Commission, being with Christ and what he is passionately doing in the world is the invitation. And all the invitations of God are always invitations to joy. Do you get that? All the invitations of God to us are always invitations of joy. If it's to repent of something, to let something go, to take hold of something, to sacrifice something, to engage with something, he's always calling us to deeper joy because he loves us. Jesus isn't standing there saying, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, and I'm bummed at you guys, so go make disciples. He just bled and died on the cross for us. Romans 5.8 says, God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated how much he loves us. So his invitation, the great commission, is a, another announcement of his love. I love you. So here is the way to joy. Because you know what? We think that selfishness is the way to joy. And what the Great Commission is meant to do is to save us from selfish salvation. We want fire insurance. We want to get saved. We don't want to go to hell. And then we want to do what we want to do. I find that the greatest hindrance to me making disciples is making myself comfortable. My selfishness. Jesus knows that we will discover greater joy in sentness, obeying the call to be sent, than we ever will in selfishness. There's greater joy in sentness, whether it's here where you live with who you know or overseas. We'll talk about that next week. There's greater joy in sentness than there is in selfishness. The problem is we rarely believe that. Because in our mind, sacrifice is always bad. Sacrifice always means less. In the economy of God, sacrifice is good and it always means more. Christ is calling us to be willing to live out sentness because he knows in that is greater joy than in our selfishness. I want you to think about John 21. John 21 is set up by the fact that Peter had denied Jesus. Remember Peter? Let's talk about uh, Peter's uh, sense of duty for a minute. Peter had said on the night when Jesus was about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, here's the deal, Jesus. Everyone might abandon you, but I will never abandon you. I will go all the way to death with you. I will never leave you, Jesus. Peter had a profound sense of duty. What did Peter do? He failed in that duty rather quickly. That night, denied Jesus three times. So then Jesus says after the resurrection to the women at the grave, go tell my disciples and Peter that I will meet them in Galilee. And they're out fishing again. And Jesus shows up on the beach and he makes a fire, and he's cooking some fish. They ain't catching no fish. They didn't never catch no fish without Jesus. Jesus has fish. You know, he's there. He's making a fire, all this stuff. 
Peter sees that it's Jesus and he throws off his jacket and he jumps in his water and he swims to the beach. And he's like, oh my gosh, Jesus. Now don't, don't, don't forget the profundity of this moment. Peter, last time he saw Jesus, was at the lowest moment in his existence. He had just said literally, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. And now Jesus comes to Peter. Why does Jesus come to Peter? Well, because, you know, Jesus really needed Peter to get his work done. He never would have pulled it off without Peter. So he came to get Peter like, Peter, dude, don't fish. I got work for you to do. That's not it. Jesus didn't need Peter. Well, because Jesus was mad at Peter. So he showed up on the Sea of Galilee. He's like, Peter, dude, you're such a kook, bro. I'll never use you. You can't do any of my stuff. That's not it. Jesus showed up on the Sea of Galilee that day to meet Peter because Jesus loved Peter more than we could ever possibly imagine in the same way that he loves you. And Peter knew that. Peter knew that's why Jesus was there. And Jesus says three simple things to Peter. Six, technically. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep, Jesus says. And then Jesus says it again. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Then tend my lambs, Jesus says. And then Jesus asks one more time. Peter, do you love me? And it says in John chapter 21 that Peter was hurt because Jesus asked again. Peter said, yeah, Lord. How could I not love you? You looked me in the eyes when I said, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying, I don't know Jesus. At my most horrific moment, Jesus, you looked me in the eyes and then went to the cross for me that I might be forgiven and have new life. Of course I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. In Jesus' mind, the sole motivation for Peter's engagement in making disciples, for our engagement in making disciples, is his great love for us. And the fact that because of that great love, we now love him. John, who was there that day on the beach, would later write in his epistle, we love him because he first loved us. And so between Jesus and Peter, it's this whole love thing. It wasn't this coercion thing. It wasn't this guilt thing like I've been putting on you today. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't like, Peter, show me your list. It wasn't any of that. It was like Jesus there with the holes in his hand saying, Peter, if you know how much I love you and you love me in return, then make disciples from this place of love. And Peter, I will always, always be with you in it. It's not that obedience is not important. It is important. We should obey it because Jesus said it. That's part of it. It's not that a love and compassion for the lost is not important. We should have a love for the lost. We should care about who God cares about. That's part of it. But the only thing that will get us over the hump ever, the only thing that will get us all the way to the finish line is to know that Christ has done this because he loves us and we are the beloved sons and daughters of God and he wants to be with us. And so in that love, he has invited us into a deeper place of joy, being a part of his work for all time. It's the only thing that will ever get you there. So that today, if you're like, oh man, my list was pretty short. Yeah, I'm not doing that much. The call is not to beat yourself up. The call is to know that you are loved by God. If you're like, yeah, my list was kind of short, the the call is not to say, okay, I'm going to cowboy up and just get her done. Just dive deeper into the love of God in Christ. 
If you're saying, yeah, my list was kind of lame. The call is not like, well, you better go like, you know, find some love for the lost somewhere. You better like read a book or something. Dive deeper into the love of God in Christ. It's the only thing that will ever get us there. I want to finish by reading a little bit of Ephesians chapter 1. We won't put it on the screen. I won't turn there. I just want to read it. Um, I just want you to listen to it. I'm going to read it from the NLT because I like it there. Just listen, okay? Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Paul the Apostle writes, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what God wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. And God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is a plan. At the right time, he'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose is that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. Listen to those words. Those words are completely exclusive from your performance, from anything you have ever done, failed to do, thought about doing, neglected doing, or may do. Those words of God loving you, God choosing you, God adopting you, God identifying you, God having an inheritance for you, God's rich kindness toward you is absolutely exclusive from your performance. It says he chose you before he ever made the world. He loved you before he ever made the world. So you've never done anything to endear yourself to God because of who God is. He loves you more than we could ever imagine. He loves you with a perfect love. So I want you to hear this. This is contrary to the goal of my sermon, but not really. Hear this. If you never, Christian, if you never ever lift a finger to do anything about the Great Commission if you never do anything about making disciples, if you never obey this in any way at all, it will never change God's love toward you. It will never compromise your standing as a beloved son or beloved daughter in God because it was always exclusive from your performance. That's why it's good news. It's good news that God loves us in spite of us. Some would think, well, that diminishes the love of God. Are you saying I'm not lovable? That's dang right what I'm saying. (laughs) We are not lovable in the view of an almighty God. He loves us because who he is, not because of who we are. 
And that only doesn't sound like good news to you because you think too much of yourself. If we will see ourselves rightly in light of the holiness of God, we will realize, thank you, God, that you love me in this way, in spite of me and exclusive from everything I ever did that I shouldn't have done and everything I failed to do that I knew I should have done. Thank you, God, for this great love. I love you, God. And so we engage in his mission because God and his love are worth it. The last thing that passage says in response to that, the second part of that sentence is, God did this so that we would praise and glorify him. We were made for the glory of God. We realize and live into and live out and preach the glory of God when we're most aware of the love of God toward us. And God is worth it. That's what that interaction with Peter was. Jesus said, do you love me more than these? Peter was saying, yeah, God, you're worth it. I'll live life on mission for your glory. May God give us such understanding and unction that we as the beloved sons and daughters of God will go to the ends of the earth and into our homes and neighborhoods with the good news about Jesus making disciples. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your kindness toward us, feeble, frail, unlovable sinners, me most of all, and yet you love us. Thank you for so great a love. Thank you for so great a salvation. Lord, I'm all like sweaty and worked up and using every word I know, but I feel totally inept at communicating what has to happen here. We confess that we need your Holy Spirit to make these things real and alive to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that it is your job to pour the love of the Father out in our hearts. Holy Spirit, come. Minister the love of the Father to us. For those who feel unworthy, for those who feel unloved, for those who feel beyond your reach, would you minister the great love of God to us supernaturally today by your spirit? Would it catch us? Would it thrill us? Would it empower us? Would your invitation to witness entice us away from our selfishness and toward a sense of sentness? And we thank you, God, for the power of the Holy Spirit. We confess we need power. Fill us to be faithful Christians. Fill us. May we receive power from on high to be your witnesses of so great a love, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.